So the, the gig economy is one of these, the term, the gig economy is one of these terms, not entirely clear where the term came from. Uh, and partly for that reason, it's not entirely clear exactly what it's supposed to refer to. But what I'm going to talk about this evening is, is primarily these kinds of things, uh, what are sometimes called the, the, the digital platforms. Um, so two of the most familiar ones are, um, and controversial ones uh, are Uber and Deliveroo, uh, which you've probably heard of. Ta TaskRabbit, I'm not entirely sure if TaskRabbit does business in the UK. Um, no. TaskRabbit's like AirTasker, but the, the logo is a bit more interesting, so it looks better on the slide. Um, uh, before I carry on, I'm just curious, have any of you, or do any of you work, work in, in, in the gig economy for any of these platforms? I know Uber doesn't operate in Oxford. Nobody. I guess everyone who does is sort of out on the street doing, <laughs> doing their thing, right? Um, okay, but so I'm talking about, we're going to talk mainly about the kind of platforms uh, that have recently evolved given advances in communications technology and which are the subject of some debate uh, out in the, in the real world. Uh, but it can be helpful to start with some more strict generalizations and definitions. So what I want to say, um, roughly but I think more or less on the right track, is that gig, gig work, when we talk about gig work, what we, what we are talking about, what we should be talking about is any kind of labor um, that, that's sort of sold to order, right, on a kind of rolling basis, whereby gig, wor gig workers are workers who are in the position of um, supplying labor according to kind of discrete instances of consumer demand. Okay, so in other words, they work when some specific consumer wants to consume the output of their labour, okay? Um, and, then, and they just sort of do it on a rolling basis. They start and stop according to when that demand comes up. Um, and what the digital platforms do, by, by and large, is they just transmit, they've enabled the transmission of information in ways that makes this sort of thing happen a lot more readily than it used to, okay? So, Uber and Deliveroo, they, they send workers information about demand that they're in a position to respond to, tells them where to go, uh, and they send information to consumers and to workers about, about the quality, about the experience that transactors had in past transactions. Right? So Uber drivers and consumers both have a kind of rating, the platforms enable this to um, uh, move around, and, and that's a large part of their appeal, right? Um, but because that's really all because that's mainly what digital platforms are, they're, they're not really that, they, they perform a similar kind of role that has been performed for a long time by, by just older kinds of platforms, right? So, um, insofar as they move information around, they're just a successor technology to older, slower ways of doing that, like newspapers. Um, remember the phone book, great big thing that used to, that used to show up on your doorstep? Um, that, that's a platform, right, for, for these purposes. Uh, and then you can probably think of other examples. So really, the digital platforms are just the kind of next level in the evolution of communications technology. Um, so that, that you might think, well, what's really new here? Um, the thing with the gig economy, or the thing with the digital platforms is, we're often, people often talk about these things as if there's some kind of revolution in, in labor markets, um, uh, with respect to the kinds of services that they, that they allow people to sell. Um, this is true to some extent. So things like Uber have made, they certainly made consumers better off. This sort of depends on where you live, but, but where I live in, in Melbourne, taxi drivers are pretty awful. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I mean, they, they, I mean they, they didn't really, they either knew or claimed to, I mean, they either didn't know or claimed not to know 
what, where you were trying to go, um, <laughs> and you know, they, might, they might try and overcharge you. And, and there's a real, although I'm not going to talk much about this, there's a real benefit to the consumer in, in a lot of these platforms, which of course explains partly why, why they've become so successful. So that's definitely a new thing. Maybe there's a revolution there on the consumer side. Um, but it, uh, my, my feeling is that the, the language about this being a new, a new wave, a new a revolution is, compared to the revolutions that happened in the past, like, like the invention of the steam engine or the invention of electricity, it's, you know, it's just not quite at that, at that level. And, um, the narrative of revolution is, after all, being pushed partly by the owners of the platforms who really want to puff them up, and to some extent by journalists who are in the un unfortunate position of having to report on something that's really new the whole time. It's actually quite hard for journalists. Um, I mean, a journalist who's got a cup of bread here has got to find some way to say, here's something new every day, and it's actually quite, quite hard to do. Um, so we want to be a little bit um, sceptical about that. But nevertheless, these, these platforms, they're, they're a thing. Right? They're a thing that arouses a lot of controversy, moral controversy, and that's, that's why we're here, right? So, uh, coming up, um, here's what's going to happen. Uh, so I want to go through, there's, there's two, two rough, somewhat distinct moral concerns about gig work or about digital platforms that are floating around uh, and that people try and articulate. Uh, and I want to talk about both of these, but the first one I'm going to talk about and, and kind of set aside quite quickly and then try and fill the time talking about the second one. There's two, there's two alleged moral problems of the gig economy. The first one I'm going to set aside, the second one I'm going to try and expand on. And, and that's going to lead me to eventually offer some conclusions uh, or suggestions perhaps about what, what the moral problem actually is. Right? So I think there is a moral problem and, and I'm going to try and get at it in this way. Uh, so that's just a, a heads up. Okay, so start with the, the first complaint. So, very, very popular. Um, people look, take a look at gig work, they take a look at Uber and delivery, <coughs> and they think it's exploitation. And what triggers this typically is, or, or what this involves when, when it's articulated, is, is some kind of view about people not getting paid what they're entitled to for the kind of work they're putting in. Right? So people think Uber is exploitative because while the owners of Uber cash in have been extremely successful, Companies worth an enormous amount. Uh, the, the individual drivers don't, don't typically don't earn very much, um, and, and possibly don't earn as much. Many gig workers possibly don't earn as much as they as they used to do doing similar work before the platforms evolved. And so, although this isn't really a, a point about exploitation, it's worth being aware that there is a real mechanism here about how platforms might push down wages. Two two factors here that are uh, of most note are that well, what the platforms do is they mean that workers have got to approach consumers sort of en masse, right? If you didn't have a digital platform um, you, and you were trying to get a ride somewhere, you, you wouldn't have a whole lot of drivers kind of simultaneously offering their services to you, and that would possibly keep the prices up. Okay, so that's one, one mechanism. And also, um, digital platforms, the, the barriers to entry for workers wanting to sell their digital platforms are pretty minimal. And they're pretty minimal compared to some of the uh, barriers that were associated with that kind of labour before the platform was around. And um, most familiar here is perhaps the, the licensing requirements for things like taxi drivers. To become a taxi driver in the old days, you had to, you had to pay good money, uh, and, and perhaps pass an exam as well, uh, to get your licence, and Uber drivers don't really have to do this. 
And they have to have a driver's license, but they don't have to have a license on top of that, as far as I'm aware, um, to, to sell their labour through the platform. Okay. Um, so those are just two mechanisms that uh, increase the number of workers. What the second one's about that accounts for uh, a larger body of workers competing with each other, and the competition is, in certain ways, more, more direct, more intense than it might be without a platform. But um, in terms of the moral substance of this, the tricky thing of exploitation claims. So the feeling that some of that exploitation is going on is very, very intuitive, but um, hard to sort of get to the bottom of what makes such claims true, if they are true. So generally speaking, there's, there's two kinds of factors that um, need to be present in order for the, the feeling that someone's being exploited to take hold. And these are very roughly, first of all, the idea that someone's being offered a wage that's just, just, just too low. It's just too low for what, lower than it ought to be. Uh, and secondly, people are accepting this offer only because they've just got a really bad set of options, a bad set of alternative options. Now, both of these conditions are important. Uh, I think the reason you need condition two um, is that, so anecdotally, I take Uber a fair bit in, in, in Melbourne, and I, 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 try and I make a habit of trying to start a conversation with the driver and finding out you know, what they think of it all. And, by and large, there seem to be two kinds of driver, in my experience. There's, this, there's the migrant workers, right, typically, uh, who perhaps would have been taxi drivers in a, in a previous, before the revolution. Um, and and they're, they're doing it pretty tough. They're, they're, they're not getting much money. And they often complain. They often complain that Uber's kind of ripping them off. But once you make it clear that you're not going to give them one star for saying this, that they, they start to open up a little bit. But the other kind of driver is the sort of tends to be a, a sort of middle-aged, middle-class white guy who just kind of likes driving. <laughs> uh, and I will say as much. I'll say, oh, I just love, you know, I've got this lovely car and I just love driving around and, and shooting the breeze. And it's very unintuitive that that person is getting exploited, even though they are getting paid the same as the migrant worker. Okay, so you need condition two for that. But it's also true that, that the wage level still matters because it's easy to think of cases where someone has a very, very bad option set, uh, apart from the offer they're in fact accepted. So um, the standard case here is something like, uh, imagine a, I don't know, a star Brazilian soccer player from the favela who, who was looking down the barrel of an extremely impoverished life until some scout from Barcelona or whoever it is saw them play and offered them this, this, this big wage. Um, again, we don't really think that person's exploited because the wage is high, even though the option set was really bad. So you need both of these things. Um, what's hard here is, is coming up with some, I mean this bit's sort of easy, it's sort of easy to identify cases where two is satisfied. The hard part is giving the substance that really explains this. So um, philo political philosophers, I've been trying for quite a long time, well 200 years isn't really a very long time in philosophy, but it's, it's still quite a long time. Um, and there isn't really, there hasn't, there isn't really a good theory of export, no, not everyone's going to like the fact that, not everyone's going to agree about this, because philosophers tend not to agree, but um, my assessment is that there isn't really a good theory of exploitation. There are very powerful intuitions about exploitation, but the problem is no one's ever really been able to come up with a good account of what a fair price for labour is, so that you can calculate, so that you can say why some offer of a wage is too low, too low relative to some baseline of a fair wage. That's not really been done. Okay, and if you can't set a reference point to calculate the degree to which exploitation has occurred, you haven't really got a theory of exploitation, okay? There's a strong temptation to fall back on 
the intuition that this is just exploitative when you look at what people are earning for certain kinds of work. But I think um, when, when we're dealing with morally problematic market scenarios, we, we should at least try and find other means of diagnosing what the injustice is rather than just rely on exploitation. So I don't want to be too dismissive about this, uh, but I'm, I'm just going to set this approach aside. Perhaps we can talk about it in the Q&A. All right. So the, the, the complaint I am going to go for is what we might call, what gets called misclassification of, of work as well. So the idea here, and again, this is a complaint made by gig workers, which is that you've got these platforms like Uber and Delivery and so on, and the platforms have managed to get away with declaring their workers as freelancers, self-employed, or partners, as opposed to employees. Um, and the complaint here that this is just wrong, this is just not what's going on in, uh, in the gig economy for at least a a wide range of platforms, right? Now, partly the complaint is motivated here by some concern about the wages being unjustly low. Why? Because if you were an employee rather than a freelancer, you'd have certain guarantees in, in most jurisdictions about minimum wage and certain other benefits that might make your overall package look fairer, right? But that's not all that's going on. Uh, so the suggestion, of, or the, the, the thought I have is that if we can get to the bottom, or nearer to the bottom, of, of this complaint, we might have quite an interesting, um, an interesting way of approaching the gig economy. Okay? So what I want to ask, <coughs> I'm going to ask and try and answer in, in the remaining time, is what's all this about? Well, this distinction between freelancers and employees, what, what is that? Like, what's, it, what's that distinction for? What, why do we have it? What do we want from it? What's its moral purpose? It, it might actually have a moral purpose. Or it might make sense only when you cash it out, partly in, in moral terms. Okay, so that's that's the that's the hunch, that's the suggestion that I'm going to try and make good of. Before carrying on, I want to go back to this thing about how that this is not as revolutionary as it sometimes sounds. So, gig work meeting the abstract definition. So remember, the abstract definition is this idea of rolling rolling agreements to perform some labour directly for the consumer. This is probably the oldest kind of work that there is. This is probably older than employment by firms, okay? And it's certainly very familiar. Again, think of the phone book, if, you, if you're old enough. Um, you've got your electricians, your plumbers, freelance workers, right? Everyone agrees. People who sell their labour according to you know, individual instances of consumer demand, often, often quite short term, um, and, and use some kind of platform, maybe an online platform nowadays, but in the old days, the phone book, um, passing leaflets for... Uh, letterboxes or, or whatever. Now, I think these kinds of cases, these old-fashioned gig work cases, are actually quite instructive when you're trying to think about the morality of the, the digital platform cases because there's various instructive comparisons we can make when thinking about the conditions that these kinds of workers work under as freelancers and the kind of conditions that typically uh, apply to, to people selling their labour through the platform. I think we can actually learn a lot from thinking about the, uh, the way in which the gig economy is not so much a revolution. Yeah? Okay, so let's, let's get started on that. Right, so you've got two kinds of workers right, in, the, in, the market. in the market economy. There's two ways in which you can sell your work, your labour. You can work for a firm, where by firm we just mean, broadly speaking, any kind of entity that will participate in an employment contract with you. Right? So not just a corporation or business, it can be a charity. 
university MBA. But, but a firm is, is an entity that employs people based on a, on a contract, right? And, and what that contract determines, among other things, perhaps among a lot of things, is going to be something about how much work you do and something about how much you're going to get paid. And then it's up to the employment law to add more stuff in. Or you can work for yourself, where you're not employed by a firm, and where the amount of work you do and the amount of money you make is more at the mercy, if that's the right expression, or more determined by the, the market, okay? Not by a contract, right? So this is, again, just a rough outline, but that, that's, the, that's really how we can begin to distinguish these two categories of worker. Okay, and the question is which one, under what conditions should gig workers be in, in category two or category one, yeah? Um, and I think it's, it's really quite a philosophical question uh, what, why we have this distinct, what, why we would want such a distinction. Okay, we shouldn't just take it for granted. I mean, we shouldn't just say, well, such a distinction exists. What does the law say about it? And we'll take it from there. There's a real question about what, what, what should such a distinction look like. Okay? So, um, first stab at the proposal I want to make, uh, there'll, be a, there'll be a second stab. Um, so what we're trying to do with this distinction between freelance workers and employees is we're trying to, I think, institutionalize um, a choice for workers. People who want to sell their labor, <coughs> we want to give them a choice. Do you, do you want to sell it through the market and take on a certain set of benefits and burdens, or do you want to go through employment, working for the man, and get a different set of conditions? Yeah? Um, and so if you're a freelancer, if you take the freelance option, roughly what you're, what you're doing is you're um, preserving certain kinds of freedoms about how you work, when you work, um, what kind of work you do, but accepting more risk about how much you're going to earn uh, and, and what guarantees you're going to give up. Conversely, right, if you work for a firm, you're, buying into a, you're signing a contract that's going to give you certain kinds of guarantees within limits, Right? Of, of, of a payday, but you're giving up some of your autonomy and freedom so the firm can boss you around. It's a rough approximation. And that's not all there is. I'm not saying this is, that's not all. I'm not saying that's, this is all there is to that distinction, but this is the bit that matters. Okay? So what I want to do is I just want to go through some of these differences between the kind of package of benefits and burdens that freelancers get and the package that em employees get I just use these comparisons to say something about where we should place delivery riders, Uber drivers, and so on. Yeah? So, uh, right, so first of all, uh, these are in no particular order, although there's going to be four of these, and maybe the fourth one's the most important, but the other three are kind of on a par, maybe. So if you are a freelancer, you have one right you have, is you have the entitlement, entitlement right, same thing, right, tonight, you, you can set the price of your labour and negotiate with customers accordingly. But if you're an Uber driver or delivery rider, you just cannot do this. Okay? You just can't. If you're an Uber driver, you, you, you charge what... Well, who wants to say you charge what the market wants to offer? I'll come back to that. But you don't choose. The, the app chooses. chooses. That, the app... It depends on the app, what, what you charge. Yeah? Um... And what's more, there's a bit more concealment here. I mean, if you're an Uber driver, and this might be one of the sort of thing that varies from locality to locality, but I was talking to an Uber driver in, in, in the States once, and he, and he told me, he said, when I get demand for a ride, 
I don't know where he's going to. I just know the distance. I just get told five, 100 kilometer ride, five kilometer ride. That's all you know. Um, and you have to say yes or no based on that alone. Okay. And, but there's nothing, nothing about the app that, that necessitates concealing that kind of information. Yeah, because they choose to. The, the people who own the app do that. And I want, I want us to compare this kind of practice with what it would say about a, a cut and dried freelancer, an old fashioned gig worker, like a plumber or an electrician. I mean, this, this wouldn't fly at all, right? If I'm a plumber and I say, and I, if I'm a plumber in the 1980s and I go around to the local paper, I say, I'd like to advertise my plumbing services. And the paper says, sure, but you have to charge what we say you're going to. I'd say, I don't work for you, I work for me, right? Um, there, there's no, nothing attractive or plausible about the idea that an old-fashioned freelance worker must charge some fixed rate based on what some platform tells them. Um, nor, nor is there anything in the idea that somehow the phone company would facilitate a consumer contacting a plumber but somehow conceal what the job was until the plumber got to the location, right? But the job is five kilometres away. Uh, you, you get to know whether it's the washing machine or the toilet or you know, whatever. Um, so that's, that's the, fir the first right that tends to accrue to freelancers but not to employees is this right to decide how much... The Negotiate freely with the customer about how much is going to change hands. Yeah? Little side note here. Well, first of two side notes. We've, we've, we've got into a position here, and maybe this get, gets us beyond the scope of... This touches on a lot of other stuff, yeah? But algorithms have, have acquired this kind of status whereby you can't <coughs> question them. So what Uber's going to say is that, oh, look, we don't dictate the price, the market does. And the app that we've developed make some calculation based on how many people are asking for rides and how many folks are out on the road driving the car, right? And there's some truth in that. Okay, there's truth in that insofar as that's, those two variables have an impact on prices. Beyond that, it's, it's actually quite hard to know what, what's going on under the hood here, right? Because Uber still own the algorithm. Um, so although Uber will say, we don't dictate, the market does, you might say, well, hang on a minute, well, who the hell cares? I mean, um, the newspaper might say to the plumber, well, we've come up with a way of figuring out you know, how many people have got broken toilets today and, and we think the price is this. doesn't follow that uh, the person selling the labour must set their price accordingly. And I think there's a deeper issue here about the way in which we think about markets versus the people participating in them. Um, we talk about the market price. Uh, and there is such thing as a market price. But at the end of the day, there's nothing to the market. The market is not a sort of beast or a force of nature that goes beyond the, the, the sort of smaller forces and beasts that sort of participate in it. Yeah? So, in a way, the market price actually just depends on where the plumbers feel like. The market price for fixing a toilet should sort of depend on what plumbers want to start with as they're negotiating the baseline, rather than just what some algorithm tells them. Uh, and there are other issues about the way in which algorithms have entered our lives and doing all sorts of damage. If I had more time, I could say more about that. Uh, but I think we're just a bit, we're a bit too quick to some kind of concede ground to algorithms when it comes to um, thinking about how, how much a transaction is worth, yeah? uh, selling of labour. Um, something else. Very interesting to compare um, platforms, that, platforms that do have this restriction, like Uber with platforms that don't. So you've got the gig economy. You've also got what's sometimes called the sharing economy. Uh, the distinction here has something to do with whether you're selling labour through a platform, like a driver does, uh, or a plumber does, or whether you're, you're just sharing an asset like your home. Um, 
That distinction might end up being a bit more complicated than it looks. Uh, partly because if you're an Airbnb supplier, you, you have to sort of do some work on your flat before people come around and stay in it, otherwise they'll be quite unhappy with what they're getting. Um, but it's notable that people don't get upset about Airbnb and other sharing economy apps uh, in the way that they get upset about Uber and Delivery. Um, and I think that's because, partly because, these apps do not try and deny suppliers the right to fix the price. So if you, if you supply through Airbnb, if you, if you rent out your home now again through Airbnb, Airbnb will tell you what they think the market price is for, you, for your kind of flat in your part of town this time of year, etc. But you don't have to take the notice. Well, maybe you should, but it's, it's your place. Right, it's your place. You, you, you put right what price you want and, and see how you get on. Uh, why, why, can't, why aren't we saying the same thing about your neighbor? Offer what kind of price you get on. There's, there are more problems with the, the sharing economy. Um, if your neighbors are letting a place out on Airbnb and you're getting these noisy backpackers coming through the whole time, you'll know what I mean. Uh, but they're not really about the relationship between the platforms and the people supplying to them. Right, so that's number two. How am I doing for time? Uh, very good question. Always a good question. Uh, want to wrap it up in the next 15 minutes. Oh, great, yeah. Uh, so number two. Now, if you're a freelancer, um, you should have the right to make choices about what kinds of capital you're going to use, what kinds of gizmo, what, what stuff you're going to use to help you provide the service. Right? Platforms often deny this right, or they restrict it quite, quite significantly. Um, and uh, the best example here is, is something like Uber again. Uh, so according to Uber, if you want to drive for Uber, you can't have to meet certain kinds of requirements. Typically, it has to be within a certain range of models and it has to be within a certain age. One of my anecdotal experiences, I was chatting to one of my, my Uber drivers. This was one of the, the middle-aged white guys, and he was kind of livid that um, he had like, you know, a B, some kind of BMW um, SUV, which was way better than a two-year-old Toyota, or so he told, way better than a two-year-old Toyota, such as the one he was in. And you know, customers loved that, that BMW, but uh, Uber won't let me drive it because it's too old, even though you know, a six-year-old BMW, uh, you get the idea. Um, and so th th there are these rules which are, um, very, very quite specific about what you can use. Uh, and the photo here, um, if, you, if you go on Uber, you'll notice that some drivers go, go quite far in, in providing little goodies, like, like water and little candies. And this picture here, I don't know how well you can see it, but there's some kind of hand soap here. <coughs> I don't know what this is, but I just like water. Um, oh, there's some kind of TV. Uh, um, but often that's something they're sort of encouraged to do by Uber. Uh, not necessarily coercively, uh, but in, in ways that I'll come back to later on. There's also evidence, there's also reports of Uber saying, you know, please don't talk to your customers about politics, things like that. Again, this is, I guess the conversation topic isn't really a, an investment in capital, but um, you know, it's a freedom nonetheless. So just to, to fill out the comparison, again, I mean, a, a cut and dry gig worker like an electrician or, or a plumber wouldn't be expected to adhere to these conditions, right? If, if the person, um, if a platform or a supplier of capital tried to say, you can only offer the service using uh, gizmos within a certain range and a certain age, this would not be considered legitimate. I mean, imagine if I'm a 1980s plumber and I say, I go out to the local paper and I say, you know, I want to you know, advertise. And they say, well, you mustn't talk about politics when, when, when you 
go out to people's houses and would not be considered within the, the range of reasonable demands that the, the platform could make. Uh, okay, third, if you're a freelancer, branding is kind of up to you, all right? Because you work for yourself, you don't have to be a walking advertisement for the capital that you use, all right? At least not, uh, not as a default. But if you work for Deliveroo as a freelancer, this is exactly what you've got to do. Now, you've got to put, this is a picture of, yeah, the Deliveroo uniform and, and, and um, box that, that goes on the back of the bike. And you've got to purchase these things. Uh, and, and, and wear them and keep them clean and, and be a kind of, not walking, but cycling advert for, for delivery the whole time. Um, and this is very much, it's not an advertisement for you, it's an advertisement for the brand. It doesn't transmit anything about you being a good rider at all. Okay? Um, and just to go back to the conceptual stuff, uh, Again, the contrast, although it might be getting a bit laboured by now, is that we wouldn't expect, we wouldn't think this was legitimate in classic cases of freelance work. If I'm an electrician and I want to buy some, some tools from some manufacturer, and they say, well, you've got to buy this like outfit as well, <laughs> advertising, it, it wouldn't fly, right? Uh, so and that's because you are not, branding is something that firm, a brand is what a firm gets to have. Um, and there's a right for, the, the default uh, situation is that if a firm's got a brand, it's got some kind of defeasible right to have employees uh, carry that brand around. But it hasn't got any kind of right to it, impose that kind of demand on people with whom it has, has contracts, other kinds of contracts. It's just a thought. Yeah? And last but not least, last but maybe most, is the right to continue trading, even if maybe you're not that great. Um, so the, the, the hoo-ha about platforms often includes this emphasis on, on ratings, right? You can rate your Uber drivers and, and they rate the Uber. Um, uh, what the platforms can do, and they can do this, by the way, they can do this pretty much regardless of what kind of rating you've got, but they can just expel you from the platform, right? If you're an Uber driver and Uber decides it doesn't want you to be an Uber driver anymore, you can be kicked off. Um, and this is what gives platforms an awful amount of leverage when it comes to getting <coughs> workers to comply with a lot of the other demands that they make, even though their workers are freelancers. Um, but again, this is not legitimate. <coughs> this is not a legitimate right of platforms. So if I was a plumber and I was kind of not very good at it, the, the newspaper wouldn't thereby have a right to expel me, I don't think, from advertising. It just wouldn't have that right. If I'm willing to pay to advertise, and I'm just sort of a mediocre plumber. Uh, word might get around that leads to me getting less gigs, less jobs, but it, it's, it's not any platforms right to, to stop you from trading. Um, of course, uh, sometimes people can be compelled to stop trading by, by law enforcement. They say, you know, that if I'm such a bad plumber that I'm a health hazard, um, then there's an independent case for me to stop trading, but importantly, that's, that's not done at the discretion of some platform that's trying to get me to where it ran, it's, it's done a, uh, through the authority of some independent body. Okay. At this point, you might think, I've been quite hard on these platforms. You might think the platforms, or uh, I've got a, a rejoinder. 
What they'll say, what they might say, is that, look, if we're Uber, we don't force anyone to work. People work when they want to work, all right? Uber doesn't say you have to work this many hours, but that's what, this is what distinguishes, you might think, distinguishes platforms from firms. Because when you sign an employment contract with someone, um, with a firm, the firm has the right to say you will show up for work this, this many hours, Absolutely, you know, unless you've got a sick note or something. Firms have got this right to say you will do this many hours for us, okay? Uh, platforms don't, don't have that. And they might say, this, this is kind of this, whatever you think about the other stuff, this is quite decisive. Two replies to this. Well, there's, if we decide that platforms are really em employers, there's nothing, nothing stopping for, uh, platforms from drawing up these kinds of contracts, right? Um, it's not obvious that uh, Uber would be unviable if, uh, or any other platform would be unviable if such contracts exist. And perhaps more, more, um, more persuasively, it's kind of an open question when, when a gig worker's working and when they're not. Um, so one of the problems, one of the complaints about these platforms is workers can be logged onto the app, like willing to work, but not get, not get trade because there's not enough consumer demand. And this is great for the platforms because what the platforms really want is an oversupply of labour. Right? They want consumers to be able to log into the app and think, wow, there's cars everywhere. Like me. They want it to be an oversupply of labour. They don't want to absorb the cost of that oversupply. So they say, well, you're just not working when you're, you know, when, when you're driving around and not getting, no one's, you're not, you're not getting the calls. Uh, but that, that's up for debate. I mean, if I, if I go to the university to give an undergraduate lecture and no student turns up, um, I'm still working. I mean, I still showed up for work. If I work in a supermarket and no one happens to come in that day, it's not as if the firm, it's not as if the supermarket can say, oh, too bad, you don't get paid for it. It's just not the way it works. So if we're arguing that, if the question is, uh, are gig workers employees or freelancers, well you can't just assume you can't just assume the answer to this question is part of what's at issue. I think it's difficult to it's maybe difficult to resolve this point, but um, certainly what, what platform part of the reason platform owners want to declare workers as freelancers so they don't have to pay them when their labour is not actually being performed. Or when there's no consumer uh, paying for some some particular performance, I should say. Alright, so this gives me the second second stand. You might think, why not be a freelancer? Like, you get loads of rights, right? If I'm, if I'm correct about uh, my little survey of what freelancers get, but you get loads of risk. Because the plumbers and the electricians, if they go, you know, they might work their backsides off distributing leaflets, advertising, in, go back to the 1980s again, advertising in newspapers, distributing leaflets, talking themselves up uh, at the pub. Um, but if no one wants their services, that's, that's too bad. That's the position a freelancer's in. You get these freedoms, but uh, if no one values the performance of your labour enough to pay you for it, there's, there's, there's no one to go to. You just don't get paid. Okay, you've got to improve or do something to, to get people to induce people to want to pay you. Uh, and so, because of that risk, um, employment contracts have a certain kind of appeal, right? Uh, you can trade the freedoms and get those guarantees. That's what makes the freedoms worth trading. That's the crucial thing. That's why it's worthwhile for many people to, to go and work in a supermarket and don the uniform and, and have to work certain hours because you get paid. Even if no one comes in the shop, you get paid. That's the difference. Um, 
And so firms have a right to boss workers around and promote a brand. And by the way, there's a, there's a long tradition of, in the economics of the firm, there's a long tradition of explaining or trying to explain why the hierarchical nature of firms improves the output of firms. Um, so there's sort of independent reason for wanting firms to exist, right? Uh, but in having those rights, these independently justified rights, firms have got to give something back in return, and that's typically by way of the kind of guarantees that we see enshrined in labour law. Minimum wage, sick pay, I mean, there's, there's disagreement about what the package of guarantees should be, but there are guarantees that don't accrue to freelancers, yeah? And so, the point of the freelance employee contrast, I think, I'm suggesting, is that it should exist to give workers, people telling their labour, these two options. Do you want to go freelance and have the rights but have the risk? Or do you want to go uh, employment contract with a firm, give up some freedom, get some guarantees? And the, the, the distinction has its moral substance only so long as this distribution of rights and duties stays balanced. And the worry about the gig economy is it unbalances it. So what does this mean for platforms? So what the digital platforms, or the worst of them, absent regulation, what they're trying to do, in many cases, is they're trying to give workers the worst of both worlds, right? They treat them like freelancers on the risk side. So if you get out of your Uber, if you log on onto the app and, and go Uber app and go out in your car and no one wants a ride, or not enough people want a ride, too bad, you, you suck up the cost of that. But Uber's still gonna treat you like an employee on the command side. It's still gonna tell you, well, you gotta have this car, you gotta have water in your car, you can't talk about this or that, etc. I'm not suggesting that Uber's the worst kind of platform here, I'm just suggesting that to some degree this is what platforms are trying to do. Yeah? And really platforms need to be forced to make a choice. Either you treat workers like employees and you give them the guarantees, or you treat them like proper freelancers and you back off from some of this other stuff. Uh, and, and you perhaps behave a bit more like the, um, the apps in the sharing economy, like Airbnb, about, about which people are not upset. Uh, rhetorical question, there's, there's no good reason. Well, why should platforms, or consumers indeed, get to have it both ways? A rhetorical question as in, they shouldn't, yeah, they shouldn't do that. Uh, uh, just to go back, go into the real world, I mean, what, what I've said here is, what I've said here is really about trying to get to the foundational, uh, the foundations of the misclassification complaint, as I've called it. Uh, Others are trying to actually apply the complaint by way of um, litigation and so on. And there's some evidence of unionisation among uh, uh, rider workers, like uh, food or delivery riders. Uh, my understanding is that the, the courts have not really upheld this uh, as well as one might have hoped. But there, have, there has been a judgment on Uber in the UK that it, look, it's an employer, and it's an employer largely because it denies drivers this right to negotiate on price. So remaining questions, uh, I've only really talked about digital platforms. Uh, there's a lot, the gig economy is a lot bigger than the digital platforms. The digital platforms are often assumed to be uh, the biggest part of the gig economy. But that's largely because their workers are going around with, a lot of their workers are going around with some brand on them. It's not true about the gig workers. Uh, higher education uh, is one of the um, industries in which there's a trend away from traditional employment and more towards the gig-like scenario of, of short-term contracts. Not, not pure gig work, but short-term contracts that resemble gig work. So there's work to be done in, in trying to work through how we might articulate uh, or not articulate certain 
complaints uh, like the ones I've aimed at the platforms to that. Uh, there's also worries about that the platforms have kind of got, they've got monop they get, seem to get a monopoly position quite easily. Uh, in fact, uh, Didi in China, which is the analog of Uber in China, is, is as so I understand, worked out a way to check if its drivers are also selling labour through Uber and then expel them if they do that. And that stops, that stopped Uber from getting going in China. So Didi is still the dominant platform there. This is very anti-competitive, right? Um, there's, there's room for a lot of discussion about how to make platforms uh, less prone to gaining monopoly power. And if you can do that, chances are, like, if platforms have to compete with each other, they'll have a reason to offer better wages and, and perhaps better conditions and, and more rights. And there's a lot to be said about that. Uh, I'm running out of time, so I'm not going to say much more. But bottom line is, yeah, there is a more, there may be many more problems with the economy. One more problem is better seen if you're careful about what you're referring to when you talk about freelancers versus employees. And by careful, I mean if you attend to the philosophical foundations about why that distinction should exist, um, you might get somewhere. I don't think the moral problem with the gig economy is a problem with digital platforms as such. I don't think anything I've said really counts in favor of banning platforms. Uh, it counts in favor of thinking more carefully about this freelancer employee distinction and using our conclusions to tell us what we need to require platforms to do.